This is a News Laundry podcast. Recently, the INB Ministry passed an order to form a 10-member committee that would suggest a framework to regulate online news content. In the light of this contentious move, MediaNama organized a discussion on online content regulation in India on May 3rd. The panel included HR Venkatesh from International Center for Journalists, Indian Express CEO Durga Raghunath, News Laundry's Abhinandan Sekri, The Wire's founding editor Siddharth Vardarajan, and Ambika Kak, a technology and legal policy fellow at Mozilla. Here's the audio of the discussion. So thank you all for uh, coming to discuss this uh, insane situation that we're in where we're looking to regulate the internet. Um, this is not new. This is not something we've not seen before. Um, and I think we're dealing with a global situation where the internet is scaring people uh, when it comes to whether it's misinformation, when it comes to um, cultural differences that are crossing uh, geographical boundaries. And at one level, this is what the internet has given us in the sense it's a one space that unites the world, that where we learn from different cultures, where we uh, learn from multiple sources of information. That's how history was supposed to be taught, right? Where you got different versions of the same thing. But uh, what we're also dealing with now is uh, uh, governments getting scared about, at one level, their own existence, at interference in their own uh, functioning. Um, and uh, also the, the possibility that when governments are not very confident that of their own standing in, in, in their country, uh, they look at regulating the most pervasive and the most popular means of dissemination of information, uh, whether it is news or entertainment, um, including, for example, stand-up comedy, which has emerged as a very strong uh, means of consumption of information uh, and entertainment. Um, so we, at, at the same time, there is a challenge that we're all facing with misinformation. And uh, a while ago, we had uh, hosted a fairly uh, intense discussion on fake news and the role of platforms uh, in that context. So what we want to do here is get a sense of how do we deal with this problem where, um, where there is great benefit that comes from the openness and the freedoms that the internet has, but also at the same time, how does a responsible community ensure that uh, this isn't used to, de- uh, to destabilize, uh, you know, uh, countries, destabilize, uh, or, or even in some cases, for example, what's happening in in case of Myanmar, uh, become a means for identification and uh, to uh, essentially ethnic cleansing. So these are challenges that we are going to face from here on. This is just the beginning of this discussion, um, at least from a, from a news perspective. Um, so th- I'm, I'm going to hand it over to, to Venkatesh to uh, take it forward from here from news. And uh, the format that we're going to essentially do is what we typically do, where there's a panel here that sets the context. Uh, and then we'd like to involve all of you in the room uh, to engage in these discussions um, because our, our core belief is that perspectives coming from different uh, backgrounds, because the people from technology, journalism, law, uh, policy, um, different perspectives add uh, to a collective learning, which then we can use uh, to have um, a deeper understanding of the issues that we're dealing with. Uh, over to you, Thanks. Thanks, Nikhil. Um, 
Hi everybody, my name is HR Venkatesh. I work for the International Center for Journalists. I'm a Knight Fellow, or to be accurate, I was as of Monday. I'm transitioning out. I'm working on a building a coalition against disinformation, um, and uh, I've been a journalist for more than 15 years. I'm going to introduce the panel to my far right is Durga Ragunath, who is the CEO of Indian Express Digital. She's been with Scroll. She's been with Juggernaut and First Post. Uh, and uh, next to her is Abhinandan Sekri, who's the co-founder of News Laundry, and uh, he's been deeply involved in the internet space and the, the broadcast space. Uh, and uh, we have Siddharth Varadrajan, who's the founder of The Wire and who's a former editor-in-chief of The Hindu. Uh, and to my left is Amba Kak, who's a technology and legal policy fellow at Mozilla. So she straddles the legal space, the tech space, the policy space. And uh, as Nikhil was saying, it's, it's going to be a structured discussion and then it's going to be open structure. And this part of it is going to be news and journalism and we're going to wrap it up in about an hour and 15 minutes. Um, why are we here? Uh, online content regulation in India, um, specifically when it uh, involves news and journalism, it's kicked off the context of course is because the Ministry of Inter Information and Broadcasting has constituted a 10-member committee and uh, we want to hear from everybody and we have deep domain knowledge in this room as well as to what you think should be done and what is the way forward. So my question first then I'll start with you Durga is um, you've been correct me if I'm wrong but you've been a journalist but you've moved mm -hmm. to management um, and Sorry, I've been in, I was a book editor a very long time ago, uh, but I think for the last 12 years, I've been a product person who then became CEO and looked after. So now I have editorial and product and tech reporting into me, but I have not reported in a newsroom or, uh, but I've overseen journalism. So yeah, I know the processes very well. I began with uh, Mint and the Wall Street Journal, which were I think for me more formative uh, and very important. Uh, I set up First Post as a digital-only brand, but within the larger framework of Network 18. And with Scroll, I was only a consultant, so that was less uh, impactful that way. And then, of course, Juggernaut, I set up, and, and now with Indian Express, yeah. yeah. So, um, I actually, it's probably a good idea to briefly do a, a larger introduction. Abhinandan, what would you say about yourself? Um, You've, you've also been running uh, Media Rumbles, you're involved in uh, bringing together a lot of people in the media space, the journalism space. I'm assuming you also interact extensively with people who decide policy, so what would you say your background is? Well, I was a reporter from 95 to 99 for Newstrack and then Ajstak, which is a bulletin, then there were no channels. Uh, that, that was only four years I did reporting. I, mean, I wrote political satire for uh, the Great Nintamasha and the at the same time, I set up a production house. So I would make a lot of non-fiction programming for channels across the board. And then I set up News Laundry in 2012 with Madhu Trehan and two other partners. So I've been a journalist for four years. And I've been a businessman for the next 15, 16. And you've been at the nascent stages of both broadcast and digital. Yes. Just, just like the, uh, Durga as well. And Siddharth, um, I've known you for a long time. but um, And I do remember you're a blogger as well. Um, you had a blog spot. And uh, so that we'll bring that into this discussion as well. But what else would you say other than the Hindu and the wire? How, what hats do you wear, other hats? Well, essentially, um, main hat is journalist and editor. Um, 
the blog was a bit of a sham really it was a it was a it was a kind of low co- zero cost archive of because in those days the times of india um, website was rubbish in terms of search you couldn't find anything so somebody said look just put everything up on blogspot so i should do that i've kind of rapidly lost interest in that part of um storage should we say uh but yeah right now the primary um sort of identity that, that i have as as a as an editor of a digital news platform and uh, i very much regard myself uh, and the work we do at the wire as being part of that news ecosystem um of course i've had long experience in print but one of the one of the beauties of digital technology is that uh, it has erased the boundaries between print and uh, television and digital on the one hand in terms of platforms as well as the organized unorganized uh, you know sector in many in many ways right so uh, at one level everybody is involved in like especially we're talking of guidelines and so on everybody is involved in the digital system and would be affected by uh, any rules or regulations uh, but at the same time it's important to to also stress the importance of the uh, professional aspect of the work we do because i think that gatekeeping editing and the responsibility that comes with running a website uh, you know in many ways is actually the salience of that has increased right uh, with with these new technologies cool and amba uh, how would you describe yourself as what interests do you have and what do you work on Okay it's a deep question I'm not a journalist and I'm not a business person I'm trained as a lawyer I work in the space called uh, which is like it's I don't know if it's a it's a real profession yet but it's getting there it's called technology policy and essentially it's a field uh, what which is interesting because it has not just lawyers but also folks from the communities that are impacted by technology but and also disciplines that help us think about how technology affects law and how law sometimes frustrates technology and, and those kind of questions i think in in this particular conversation i'm having that like on this particular issue of online and news regulation uh the interesting thing is that people in the in the policy bubble as we call it often come up with solutions so last time we were here um i kind of told folks about proposals such as trust marks for news and accreditation systems and i remember a lot of journalists in the audience were like whoa that is a very bad idea in the context that we live in and so i think w- one of the good things about having people a lot of people from diverse disciplines is to just kind of bounce out these policy ideas to the people whom it will affect and try and, and contextualize and think about those issues better okay and can we do a quick dipstick survey of people in the room because i think there's a mix of journalists uh, how many journalists are there can you just lift your hands please a lot of journalists how many people uh, from the legal space lawyers okay uh, and people from policy and maybe people from the telecom space um have i missed out anything interested individuals technology, technology sorry platforms teaching um okay any students anyone from the government space government organizations affiliated to the government yes kind of in that nebulous space between okay great uh, so it's a fantastic panel and nikhil this is this is great uh, i mean so much information and brain power in this room durga what 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 would you say is journalism and what is news especially from it come when it when you talk about online uh, are blogs part of this is satire part of this 
is user generated content part of this um so i think i think for me journalism would mean some kind of process um and i think that process definitely includes people with certain kinds of specialized skills um and that process is i think uh, you know it it started to take if in the past there was a certain very defined period of time associated with the process i think that process has been um definitely gone through different kinds of versions um as as we write live as we tweet as we do a lot of threads to do with photographs i think storytelling has changed but uh to probably give both reporters editors additional responsibility than what they had in the past i don't i think the wicket keepers in the system have definitely um <laughs> given way but for me journalism definitely means process it definitely means expertise and specialization um i think for me uh but but i think india historically and siddharth will speak to this far more wisely than i will ever but uh, to say that i think there've definitely been lots of gaps right uh where there were perhaps only a few institutions and not too many for us to mature across a spectrum and that led to a lot of uh, citizens also deciding that um information is not really information coming out of the newsrooms of india were just not good enough right and that led to this whole process of individuals and citizens somehow becoming uh explainers revealers reporters themselves and i think where it got last point where it got a little murky is when um uh you have distribution platforms which has given them unprecedented scale as well right and therefore uh, a, a lay user becomes equally confused right and and i think that that's my interest or i don't have answers but to say that that's a very complex problem and and i think i'm in a space like this to try and figure out what could be the different ways to think about it yeah. okay so just so i don't get it wrong it's a process but that also includes this entire universe that you've sketched out as potentially being yeah yeah so i think something that me, can be regulated yeah, yeah. Think, or not regulated uh, no i think i think that the more the pro- i see every newsroom will make mistakes right and you apologize and you have corrections and so on but i think um i think when you don't have process those those uh, mistakes are going to be greater and because of the velocity of uh distribution and consumption uh in the last 2 to 3 years both because of mobile uh internet as well as uh television journalism becoming phenomenally different from what it was 2 3 years ago i think you're having this like like this volcano that really um not volcano sorry just like explodes really fast right um so but i definitely don't think the government should play any remote role in uh, regulating anyone i think you have courts and i think you have laws i think that uh, definitely the digital media must talk to each other way more than we do uh, and i think just like broadcast has when certain huge events occur they do pick up the phone talk to each other and say listen we're going to do this and that and there's a body to do that i think digital media can definitely talk to each other and figure it out but i think the government should totally stay out of it okay um there's a press council of india and press council of india i think was formed out of uh, an act of parliament i think it's a statutory body amba you can correct me if i'm wrong but um it is also um 
it doesn't have any jurisdiction over broadcast and internet and i think there's a news broadcasters association and they are they've not been constituted it's a self regulatory body so they don't have any um, uh, governmental sort of authority behind them um, would you say that the internet um, publications and they should regulate themselves they should form an association that kind of thing i think they should um make an association and um, have a voice but the purpose of that actually in my views while it uh, it it it'll deal with some of the content regulatory uh, you know aspects of it i think that will also look at uh, structuring um, laws around businesses around uh, how you structure companies which doesn't impact individual bloggers or just someone who's on the internet so i think two very distinct parts of this debate while this is online content regulation in india so i think um that is a far bigger debate and a wider debate and that uh, impacts you know millions of people whereas um a body like if the wire quint news laundry came together i mean that would be uh, speaking for limited interests um and while it could have a you know larger scope but that would ideally be um the purpose i think i don't know I, I, that's just my my view but uh but you know uh, what what durga said about what is news i think that is the key uh, debate and it's it's very complex because um you know there are going to be definitions of when you say what is news are we saying in the context of regulation or in life like uh, you know i've been a reporter and i was a reporter for any of the channels came about news laundry used to, uh, news track used to be a video cassette a vhs tape which many people here have probably never even seen um and arsak was a bulletin um i mean i was 21 you know for me sometimes a news report was when news track used to be around the stories of from 8 minutes to 25 minutes a story when arsa came along we were told you have to do a story between 30 to 90 seconds so we'd go get a bite put a voice over this side that side and it was a story that was news but that bite itself is news i don't need someone saying now i'll show you what you know sadar fazlajan says cut to bite that's what he said aaj tak abhinand sekri i mean so if that by itself is news then there is no process anymore so it's i mean it's um, the scale of the problem is mind numbing but i agree uh, especially in the context like india to give the government the kind of power it wants in constitutional committee and if you see the 10 members of that or nine being bureaucrats um well eight being bureaucrats i i i don't even know what they'll come up with um just to play devil's advocate you know in 2011 justice karju said uh, you know how can tv regulate itself what's the meaning of self regulation that means no regulation um so keeping that in context would you say then that there needs there needs to be some regulation of online content because there's hate speech as well and i'll come to amba on that uh, and there are so many other types of online content how do we deal with that so my issue with um since the context of this discussion should be clear to everybody it's the you know proposal of smriti rani and the inb ministry and the modi government more generally to have um some kind of online content regula- regulatory mechanism right and the the announcement put out by the ministry uh, to my mind began with uh, a half truth or an untruth and that that half truth or untruth was that uh, print and television are both regulated which they are not and that online is unregulated which is also not true so the fact is that we uh, the wire uh, uh, news laundry all websites even the digital expression of the indian express 
which is a great print brand and is a great, um, great web brand, digital brand. Uh, all of us are bound by the Information Technology Act, uh, which, if you go back to the bad old days of 66A, was a pretty horrible law, and that applied. Uh, I remember as uh, editor of the Hindu at that time, being acutely aware of the fact that the Hindu.com uh, was subject to the IT Act, including 66A. And that the irony was that a cartoon or a statement that we would carry in the newspaper uh, would be perfectly legal. But if it was put on the website, it, it, get, it, it had the potential of being criminalized. Right? So they took 66A out, but you have 67A uh, on which prescribes the transmission of obscene or less, you know, lascivious material, what they call you know, material calculated to deprave, which is, and my chair is now misbehaving, but anyway. Um, and uh, the, um, you know, the way in which the police forces around the country enforce these kinds of rules, right? I mean, the other day we saw in, in Chhattisgarh uh, a reporter who shared a cartoon critical of the judiciary and the prime minister and Amit Shah in the context of the lawyer uh, case. It was, I saw the cartoon, even though it was deleted. I would say it's a distasteful cartoon. It's not, you know, it's not a, uh, you know, it's not great cartoon by any stretch of the imagination. But the Chhattisgarh police, you know, file a case of sedition against the guy, you know, yeah. which is completely outrageous, considering that you have 60 years of jurisprudence from the Supreme Court, which clearly says that sedition kicks in only if there is violence or threat of violence, yeah. right? So, um, so I think that we are today. Digital is actually excessively regulated. Uh, I'm not saying that you know, uh, uh, you know, we will, you know, we, that we want all of this to go away overnight. But I think that if anything, we are overly regulated because apart from the IT Act, to which all digital platforms are, su are subject, you have the usual gamut of criminal defamation, 295A, 153A, uh, uh, plus of course the plus sedition, which is misused or abused. So we are highly regulated actually. Uh, and so, yes, there should be self-regulation. And to the extent to which we are not, you could say that what's wrong with there being rules. But there are already rules, and I'm not sure what new rules the government wants to come up with. Uh, as, a, as a kind of first principle, in my view, as I said at the beginning, the boundaries between digital newspapers and television channels and even private blogs, etc., have increasingly gotten erased. So if at all we are to think of any kind of discussion on content. Uh, it would seem logical that there should be no discrimination between different, different platforms. So content, so, so a cartoon, if the law says the cartoon is seditious, it shouldn't matter if it's printed in the, in the Times of India or if it is broadcast fleetingly on, on television or if it is on some books, somebody's Facebook wall. Either it's bad or it's not bad. You shouldn't have one yardstick for digital and one yardstick for everybody else. Um, Amba, what would you say is, just to set a baseline, um, we've been talking about this before, uh, one would assume that the United States with its First Amendment and has the strongest legal backing. And on the other hand, you have 60 years or 65 years of jurisprudence in India and we have our laws. And Siddharth saying that it's excessively regulated. From your perspective, what would you say? Sorry, can I? ignore and just back up and I'll come, come back to your question because I think something that's bothering me is that we've started this discussion with the assumption that 
uh, sort of online content regulation is necessary, but we're not talking about for what reason. So maybe just to step back and ask what, like maybe to everything we're saying, are we talking about in general or are we talking about specific issues? So are we worried about fake news, which we want to regulate, or are we worried about hate speech? Are we worried about misogyny? There are many reasons why we want to may want to regulate. So I think a prior question is the sort of why regulate question and, and what we're speaking to in this discussion. I, I don't know if this is like a distasteful analogy, but after 9-11, uh, there was a lot of very liberty eroding uh, surveillance laws kind of that were passed in the US because there was this environment that something had to be done after such a sort of horrific terrorist attack. And I think similarly in the last few years after the sort of Russian interference with US elections and this kind of, um, kind of worry about fake news and platforms and their importance, there's a similar kind of call that has gone out that something needs to be done. And what I would think that we should urge regulators and these conversations to ask is the prior question of what is the specific harm we're talking about? Because maybe we think that with child pornography, for example, automatic blocking of content is fine. But maybe when it comes to copyright, we think you should give the party that is being accused of infringement a chance to object to the uh, to the allegation. And perhaps still with misinformation or fake news, many of us might think we should do nothing. So I think if we lose the type of content we're talking about, we kind of might slip into dangerous territory. That's just my uh, first point. Um, and then to the question of does the problem change online? So uh, Siddharth gave you an example where he said, why should it? Because it's the same kind of content, the same rules should apply. Um, and I think like broadly we might agree with that. In fact, we have as has already been pointed out, we already have a lot of laws on hate speech that, for example, on sexual harassment, on criminal defamation, which already regulate content and are medium agnostic, whether it's online or offline. But I suppose, let's take, I mean, if I, if I can just take another minute and take the example of paid news, because I think it's an interesting one. We have, we have this like set of guidelines from the election commission and I think they've consulted with the press council on paid news or this issue of the fact that there is editorial content but there is not enough disclosure that it has been paid for or that it's not actually editorial content but it's advertising content. And many are now saying that this whole problem with political advertising on social media is exactly the same, right? Because again, you don't have enough disclosure and, and it's, it's just the same problem. But actually, if we dig deeper and we look into the rules, particularly in India, we find that it's not that easy to just transport these rules that were made for a different medium onto the internet. For one, we might find does, does things that I post on Facebook or anyone posts on Facebook qualify as news? Is it editorial content as understood previously? The guidelines that apply to social media users apply to the users, not to the platform. So that idea of editorial guidelines doesn't really apply. So I'm just giving this as an illustration of why when we try to import, uh, sometimes when we try to import rules from traditional media onto online media, we run into issues of what is news uh, and you know what are editorial guidelines and who can be held uh, responsible. Yeah, so, so maybe to close, whenever we do have these discussions to ask what specific problem are we talking about um, and does the problem change when we move online? Can I just come back on this issue of paid news? Paid news on you know, different platforms. See, the thing is that I don't think it's such a, such a problem because the uh, paid news, uh, this is an irony that we should all reflect on, paid news is not an offense from the media house or media law point of view. 
it becomes an offense from a tax point of view if you get cash and you don't declare it, right? Otherwise, a media house which engages in paid news, it breaks no law. It became a legal issue in a big way because the politician, there were instances of the politician resorting to paid news. But even then, the issue was not definition of news. Issue was they were getting caught because they were spending money and not declaring it. Right? So, so there, there were issues of uh, truthfulness of their election expenditure affidavit and the two or three MPs or MLAs who got, uh, uh, you know, uh, the EC went after them was because of the, uh, so, so on the you know, print versus digital, I could say, you know, uh, uh, for example, if the EC could get evidence that Twitter, Twitter bots or Facebook pages are taking money and uh, promoting the interests of a politician, and you could trace the money trail and then establish that the politician has not declared. Now, the irony is that if he, if he or she declares that expenditure in her affidavit, and it is within the 75 lakhs limit for, for uh, being an MP, uh, then the, actually even that aspect, whether you have done paid news in a newspaper or paid news on the internet, uh, becomes uh, is not a violation. And I think that uh, uh, you know if, it would be useful to see, because here you have the intersection of of media law and election law uh, to see if what kind of a regulation one could come up, come up with that takes into account, as Amba says, the distinction between different platforms, but which you know creates a set of rules that, at least as far as politics is concerned, could uh, could deal with this menace. Okay, um, Durga, I'm just going to get to Amba asking her about the laws, but I also want to talk about civil society and whether civil society can be engaged in regulation and helping regulation because you're very clear that there should be no regulation whatsoever from the government. So if you can uh, develop those thoughts. Uh, Amba, would you say that India is over-regulated? Um, yeah, so now may be a good point, time to come back to your previous question. So even though America is like sort of championed as being the, the free speech extreme ideal, if depending on who you are, I think actually India also has some very rich jurisprudence on free speech. So just two things that I would flag as like context for what uh, our jurisprudence says. The first is that, of course, free speech is an individual right. It's my right to speak and participate and receive information. But it has also been connected through some seminal cases to collective values like democracy. So free speech is important in so much as an informed electorate is essential for democracy. And so I think understanding free speech as this collective good rather than just an individual right is um, especially relevant to the conversations that we're having today. And the second is that our Supreme Court in, in 1995 there was a, uh, ironically, I suppose, the Cricket Association of Bengal case. It's an interesting case because in that, the Supreme Court says that, of course, the government, as we've all kind of recognized, the government is a restraint on, can, of course, impose restraints on free speech, and those must be tempered. But they also said that there are more, and like I'm quoting, subtle restraints on access. And those might come by deciding who controls the infrastructure of communication. So again, there are very important lessons today from understanding who controls the infrastructure and what where we speak, and what responsibilities do they have, whether public or private. That's one. And maybe finally, to just talk about Shreya Singhal, because um, Siddharth brought it up. And again, that's seminal, because 
uh, free speech and its restrictions were analyzed in the context of the internet. And there the court was clear that when it came to 66A, terms like grossly offensive, menacing, and annoying were not only, they were sort of obviously fell foul, they were vague and arbitrary, but they also were not reasonable and they were not a reasonable restriction on our free speech right because they would actually harm the presence of having an informed electorate and they might cause chilling effects and therefore we would not communicate freely about politics online as, as because the way in which was, it was applied was usually in that context. Okay. Yeah. Um, so just a time check, we've done about 30 minutes. Um, we have another 15 minutes before we open it up. I think we've all agreed that we don't want any regulation and we've set the, the, the legal and the, the baseline and un understand that India has got a rich um, history of upholding freedom of speech. That's essentially what you were saying, right? The, yes. But there are other uh, uh, topics as well. Uh, Abhinandan specifically, I'm, after Durga, I'll come to you, but uh, with your experience on satire and how satire can lead to polarization. Should that be regulated? Let's talk about that. But Durga, back to the UGC question, not the UGC, the community and civil society question. If, let's say, the government should not regulate uh, the media, the, in, the, in, uh, the online content, purveyors of online content may or may not be able to uh, regulate themselves. So how do we involve civil society? No, so I Especially think when, you know. Typically, yeah, so civil society, I think, again, organizes itself, right? I mean, so you can have like non governmental organizations, you can have movements, and I think now uh, social media has become the easiest tool to organize civil society movements, right? Uh, both within India as well as outside of India, we've had lots of examples where, uh, and I think, I think Nikhil and his work. Uh, in, in organizing a certain kind of uh, opposition to something that was overarching, overreaching and unfair was very effective uh, a year or two ago. So I think, uh, I think civil society today plays an incredibly important part. Uh, I think when, when you have uh, uh, certain kinds of thinking uh, within government, it plays an even more of an important part, right? When there is not a clear understanding of uh, democracy or when there is not a clear understanding or respect for what are very fundamental constitutional rights of citizens or values in a civil society, I think civil society simply has to act, will act, and it'll play a phenomenal role, right? So I think uh, and, and, and you have seen that in the last year or two, um, whether you have uh, smaller organizations who are uh, looking at data, who are interpreting uh, the news, who are organizing for very specific, deep issues, putting out excellent reports, work, so on. And you're also seeing a groundswell of a lot of emotional opinion around certain things, right? Forcing. Um, the hand of powerful people who simply would not act otherwise or wouldn't even probably engage or talk about those things, right? Even if it comes late and uh, a, a little too late. So uh, the, the forms of that, I think if, if in the past was, um, um, you know, it, it, it Organized, it, it typically used to organized as intellectuals getting together, people getting around intellectuals. So the concentric circles grew, right? In, in I think with social media also, with very large movement that ends up happening, whether uh, intellectuals and academia come in later or first, uh, I mean, the, the order varies, but typically you have 
intellectuals, uh, legal uh, expertise, as well as very, very uh, involved uh, citizens who take the shape and form and move that movement forward. Uh, and then it could get institutionalized, it needn't get institutionalized, right? So I think you'll definitely see more and more of that. You'll definitely see a lot of questioning from uh, people who are very smart and feel very deeply and care very deeply about the future of this country. Yeah. Okay. Um, th there'll also be the issue of an ombudsman, if uh, like Ofcom. I'll, I, I want to talk about that and listen to what you have to say as from your perspective as well as having worked in print and digital. But Abhinandan, just using yeah, see, uh, satire as a framework to open up on polarization, hate yeah, speech, see, polarization fake news. That's, I don't think that's got anything to do with satire or news. It's a, it's a new, um, and I keep tossing this around, it's, it's, a, it's a new phenomenon the world over. It's because this online disinhibition syndrome, which has been studied, and Time magazine has done a cover story on it, and how people say stuff online that they wouldn't face to face, and that leads to certain polarizations. And as a free speech absolutist, I think uh, it's you know ridiculously even suggest that there should be any regulation on free speech, especially on satire. Um, but I want to come to the law <clears throat> because that's the trickiest bit. Because saying that free speech is absolute, and unless there is a you know clear and imminent threat of violence or harm, uh, anything goes. And I belong to that. Um, you know, there is also Section 69A that was upheld by the Supreme Court, and you know we haven't spoken about that. While 66A was struck down, I believe you know, Justice Chalmeshwara and Nariman did uphold that, saying that, uh, which basically says that the government can block a website, and the website, you know, it'll be blocked. It, it's not subject to appeal. And I can read this off the first post article that that portal that Durga founded, uh, but. You know, you can go over it, but they said that it's valid. So, as of today, there is, I agree with Siddharth, way more regulation than is required. So, the danger of there's not enough regulation, I think, is completely unfounded. And this discussion is being had in the context, you know, one has to understand that we're talking about the Indian government, it doesn't matter which party is in power. I mean, 66A was the creation of the UPN and, and not the NDA. So, in this political context where we have had enough examples, including the one in Chhattisgarh recently, and you know whether it's Mamta arresting someone for making a cartoon on her or someone arresting a Sonia Gandhi cartoon and Hafpo carried a piece on what happens to people who speak about Modi uh, you know, on, online. In that context, I don't think it's realistic to suggest that there is enough uh, latitude for free speech in India. I think not at all. Okay. The vaguer the law, um, the, the more uh, it can be misused. Um, but coming back to what the regulatory framework should be, I suspect there will be uh, a solution that will lean more on technology than on legal minds. Um, because as of now, you cannot have a law that only applies to Indian websites. And if you want to have that law apply to Indian websites, it has to apply to all, in which case you're going to have a firewall, then we're not the liberal democracy we want to be. So I, I think it's a battle that can't be won, but if people want to fight it, uh, they can go ahead. You, you cannot justify regulation. Right. Okay, so that, this uh, question that was here from Nikhil's notes. Um, if an ombudsman is to be appointed for major news organizations, how far would their powers go? Who would appoint them? So, um, right now we have a few examples of uh, in-house uh, ombudsmen, the public editors, readers, editors, Hindu, Scroll, The Wire. One of the hazards, I should say, is that our public editor uh, has become the uh, invariably gets named by the Adanis and Ambani's and Jaisha. When I mean her, her role kicks in, and it very clearly says so. 
that she's not an employee and her role kicks in after publication uh, of a story. So there's no question of her being held responsible for defamatory content, or alleged defamatory content. But all these cases also get filed against her. I just want to flag this to know the kind of garbage that's going on out there. But as far as uh, a kind of supra-organizational ombuds ombudsman, or a, uh, you know, I think the UK has Ofcom. Uh, we should certainly look at some kind of an arrangement here. I think we're many years away from that kind of discussion because forget about uh, a pan-media, uh, you know, ombudsperson. Newspapers themselves don't agree. Television created NBSA, but the minute NBSA gave findings against, say, Z Television, they have uh, dis completely disregarded it in the Gohar Raza case. Uh, so I'm not, you know, I think the tendency of media houses today is still to say, you know, we will, uh, we want to be held responsible only in terms of our own, uh, our own standards and we will not listen to anybody else. But a, if at all, an Ofcom or a, a kind of a, a supra pan-media regulator, or not regulators, like an ombudsperson, against whom, whose role it would be to receive complaints from the public and uh, deliberate on those and uh, come up with uh, some kind of finding. As long as those pers the persons who staff that organization have no connection to the government, and I, and I mean no, no connection, they cannot be appointed by the government, they cannot be ex-government, uh, they cannot be politicians because we know the kind of uh, uh, institutional or political baggage that uh, these individuals, they should be gen genuinely, they should be lay persons, uh, uh, preferably people who have an understanding of how the media functions. You could look at that sort of an arrangement. But as of now, even if you look at the press council, right, which newspapers have subjected themselves to for the last 60 years, um, it's a creation of government. Government funds it, government appoints the chairman of the press council, but you have uh, a selection process for the other members and, you know, it's. Right now, there's a controversy as to you know, newspapers are objecting and journalist organizations are objecting to some of the current members that have been named to the press council. But even uh, this press council with quasi-judicial, you know, so it has, it has, it can receive complaints and adjudicate on them and even come up with um, recommendations, uh, but it has no uh, enforcement mechanism. Uh, and this has not worked very well, quite yeah. frankly. You know, so but that, that was my follow-up, yeah, which yeah. is, you're saying the ombudsman, if there is going to be one, is going to be light years away. Should it have punitive powers? Should it be able to find? I think Ofcom in the UK can find yeah. uh, organizations. Right. But I'm, I'm not sure if, uh, in the sense that uh, you have to voluntarily subject yourself to Ofcom in the first place. So there's no statutory underpinning that says every newspaper, every blogger has to be part of that. Right. So uh, clearly, you, you know, I think there should be NBSA is an example, right? NBSA is an example of uh, TV channels so-called voluntarily agreeing to a certain code of conduct and a certain uh, dispute resolution mechanism. But as we clearly see in the case of Gaur Raza, there have been two findings of the NBSA saying that they have defamed uh, Gaur Raza, they were unfair to him and that they should pay a fine and they should apologize and they haven't done so. So, uh, so this, you know, but I think the alternative, which is to create something through statute with government involvement, uh, and with punitive powers in a, in a place like India no. would be a complete recipe for disaster. Right. So, it, okay. Clearly, it means that, uh, I mean, we, we're all uh, free speech absolutists. I am also towards the absolutists for free speech, but I'm deeply worried about 
fake news and polarization. So I want to ask you a question, Amba, if there's a good reason for regulation. Why regulate? Is there a good reason? Okay, I'm, not, I'm not going to answer your question. Uh, but I think uh, the question is firstly, like, do we already have laws, right? That's a recurring theme. So let's come to fake news. To the extent that fake news overlaps with hate speech and you know information that is fake is also hateful towards particular protected communities in India, yes, it is already covered. So like many members of this panel have already mentioned, we already have a lot of laws in the books, especially in our criminal code, but also in the IT Act. Now, the second question, which is we've kind of only touched upon, but uh, Nikhil, in, for example, has written a lot about it, which is even if you made laws for the online sphere, how would you ever enforce them? I think that's a really important question, obviously, but I always worry that once we get to that question, we lose the first question. So do we need to regulate? I think should be, if you have a principled objection, and I'm not, I'm not saying that I'm, I'm not like revealing where I stand on this, but I'm saying if you have a pr principled objection to regulating fake news, that argument should be made without explaining that, oh, but even if you did want to regulate it, it would never be enforced. And the reason is that there are other kinds of speech, for example, sexual harassment, uh, say, say revenge porn, where actually governments all over the world are trying to coordinate to figure out how do we remove this content fast enough so that the victim's rights are not harmed. So there is a separate conversation happening on actually how to enforce these kind of rules globally, maybe not at a touch of a button, but, but quicker than it's happening now. And that's a separate conversation. But when it comes to fake news, when truth versus fiction is being kind of co-opted by all kinds of parties, we might have a more principled objection to having anyone be the arbiter of truth. That comes with a lot of cost to society, and it means that there is a lot of garbage online that we kind of have to deal with. But I think I would, I, would, uh, I guess my, my point here is that before we go to the pragmatic argument of how would we even enforce it, there should be a clear position on do we think that it is a reasonable restriction on free speech? And you don't have to be a free speech absolutist, if, if I may, to say that you know perhaps regulating an, uh, a nebulous concept like f fake news would definitely fall foul of the Constitution. Uh, fair enough. Final comments from the panelists, uh, especially if there's something that you have wanted to say but have not been able to say. Uh, it, I mean, uh, you, you, you were the first off to say that there should be no regulation whatsoever. And we spoke about uh, the scope of yeah, yeah. So I think what this I involves. Think only, uh, you know, slight nuance I'd add to it is to say that, you know, I think not only shouldn't it be, I think it's very hard to, right? I think it's impractical to think that one can uh, regulate fake news because, uh, you know, individuals uh, make up or create realities for different reasons. And when they create those realities, they want to believe in those realities, and people like them want to believe in those realities because they want that to be their life or their vision for themselves, right? So it's, it's, a, it's a lot of very, very deep, uh, like sociological reasons and political reasons why it happens. Uh, I read a great article in Nature uh, which basically said political fake news spreads the fastest because you create realities in politics much more than you do in other things, right? So I think that it's just, I mean, it can be an individual, it can be groups of people, and people just, like, I, I remember being, uh, you know, in some WhatsApp group with my 
um, you know, Tamil fraternity and during one whole uh, wave of feeling Tamil, um, there were lots of terribly rational people who believed a lot of crap, right? So, and I'm sitting there thinking, wow, you know, so when it's really close to your heart, you tend to believe things that you otherwise would not. And it's just now, I think in very polarized times, you will see this, uh, and, it, and it's just, I, I, I don't think it's possible to regulate it at all. Leave alone, should be or shouldn't be. Okay, Abhinand. Yeah, um, well, the most important thing that I want to say is that um, a couple of days ago, about 100 uh, media professionals put out a petition uh, to the Information Broadcasting Minister uh, opposing any move to form this committee to regulate. So if anyone in this room wants to add their name to that petition, and I highly recommend you do, just go to onlinefreedomfoundation.org. I repeat, onlinefreedomfoundation.org and please add your name, because we should have thousands of names from all over the country to take this on. Um, I, well, I don't have that much to add, but I, I will say definitions still are evolving. There are some real-life examples of laws and behavior that we can replicate and say the same thing works online, but there are many new problems that online throws up that are unique to online life. Uh, and this virtual life is going to throw up a whole bunch of new virtual problems, and those have to be solved uh, as, as time goes by. For example, this term fake news suddenly is doing the rounds, but it's not a new creation. I mean, if, if you reported incorrect facts, that was fake news, but earlier we used to call it reporting incorrect facts, and there were laws for reporting incorrect facts. So suddenly to have a new law for fake news, I don't get it. Like, it makes no sense. Um, and I think uh, Siddharth has articulated that better than I have. So I, I just think that in this debate, we don't have to reinvent stuff just because there are new terms for old things. There are completely new things, I acknowledge those, but there are some that are not new. Yeah. Siddharth? Yeah, I think, uh, you, you know, I, I would oppose uh, discussions, particularly at the official level, which try to get into definitions. Uh, let alone fake news, I think it, it would be deeply problematic to allow the government to define what is news. In other words, uh, uh, you know, the fact is that news or journalism, you know, Durga began by talking of process. I would say process, tradecraft. This is what involves, this is what journalism is all about. But there's no reason, there's no need to have the government or some other body say, you know, uh, uh, so this is what news is and you can, you know, that there are 10 elements that you conform to and everything else is not news. There can be discussion on content. And if content is, is defamatory, if content is uh, inflammatory, if content breaks uh, various laws which exist, rightly or wrongly, on the statute books, I'm not getting into that. Uh, uh, hate speech, for example, is not allowed in the Indian context. Uh, then uh, whether this is classified as news or fake news or uh, whatever it is, uh, you know, the, the law should take its course, as it were, right? And so I think any uh, involvement of the government in terms of defining what is fake, and you know, the the, uh, the body that uh, Smithy Rani tried to create, uh, completely absurd, zero, uh, you know, and of course they had the whole fiction that this was her own initiative and that Modi then, you know, gallantly stepped in and, you know, anybody who knows anything about this government knows that, you know, not a, not a, uh, you know, not a feather moves without the Prime Minister uh, essentially giving, giving its clearance, right? And so to, to imagine that Smithy Rani just dreamed this scheme up herself is, you know, uh, living in a fool's paradise. But they withdrew that because they saw the power of opposition, you know, Abhinandan mentioned this petition. In the case of the fake news, um, uh, you know, uh, attempt by the government to create this uh, very, very silly and dangerous mechanism. The outrage was across the board, left, right, because, you know, if you allow members of the public 
to simply go and flood press council of india with complaints and the complaint may be against the wire it may be against the republic tv it may be against uh, times now and then you have uh, accreditation being cancelled or suspended you know you're asking for trouble here right so i think government should keep off this uh, and in the case of digital regulation uh, abhinandan made the point and i want to emphasize uh, emphasize this very clearly that you know we are talking about digital content which unlike print or television that it's in the nature of the technology that it does not respect geographical boundaries of regulation the only way you only way you can force fit geographical boundaries of regulation is to ban or block content is is for india to become china uh, there is no halfway house you go down that path you end up where china is and i think we all need to ask as journalists as lawyers as academics as people in the telecoms industry uh, that do you want india to go go down that path because believe me tomorrow smriti rani comes up with regulations she can enforce it on news laundry on express on the wire because we are based here she cannot enforce it on the newyorktimes.com what will you do when newyorktimes.com will not says i won't abide by your regulations are you going to block that site if you don't block them are you then not creating an unfair playing field between sites that are abroad and are not blocked which also and, can uh, be challenging yeah, exactly you know so so i think that you know we do not want to go down this path uh, yes we we owe it to readers and to society at large as uh, media organizations to uh, behave uh, according to the you know what our trade craft really is all about uh, and uh, to to evolve standards of self regulation to ensure that we stay on the straight and narrow but to cede that part of the government i'm afraid is a recipe for disaster crystal clear final thoughts amba okay maybe just very quickly to say that we should just go back to when there for example a committee like the one that was announced the question to ask is are we regulating the medium at large or are we regulating a particular kind of speech a particular kind of communication so i think just going back to narrowly defining the problem would probably do the job of explaining that like if your problem is fake news how is this committee going to solve that problem uh, i think at that former stage rather than even going into enforcement we could probably nip the problem in the bud all right nikhil it's over to you i mean there are so many other questions right uh, well one is about regulating a particular type of speech but is there also a move to regulate a particular type of entity and, you know uh, abhinandan and i had this conversation a few days ago about uh, how a certain level of online media is already regulated so abhinandan do you want to go into details of uh, what happened in case of fti um yeah. because because my my question there so uh, is that um do i have greater protection in terms of free speech or lower regulatory burden in terms of free speech as a blog uh, versus being recognized as a news portal as such right and so therefore are we also creating a gap where so one is between global players versus indian uh, players but also do we also creating a regulatory gap between someone who wants to be seen as media and someone who's not and what are the restrictions uh, any thoughts on that yeah so it's all very vague right now and depending on the agency you speak to you can get a completely different answer and it's actually quite comic you know hopefully um, soon i'll write a long piece on this uh, to explain exactly as far as content is concerned there is no distinction between a platform and an individual Uh, so a blog will be governed by the same laws that an entity or a private limited company or a section 25 company uh, or an ngo would uh, but when it comes to um tax laws 
and compliance uh, as far as uh, the regulatory framework around FTI is concerned, um, it is very vague because as of now, only two things fall, and you've written a really good piece on this, that technically the IB industry has no jurisdiction on this because this is, uh, you know, already been owned. Well, not only do they not have jurisdiction, uh, they have said in parliament that they don't have jurisdiction. Yes, exactly. Rathor, and you've quoted that piece as well. So twice in response to questions in parliament, Rathor has gone out and said that the jurisdiction lies with, with Métis. Right. In this case, it seems like Métis ceded ground, and I'm, I mean, whatever committee gets constituted, it can also be challenged on that ground alone that they've not... Yeah, so I actually spoke about this to uh, a bureaucrat, and, and what he told me is, uh, Parliament mein jo bhi kahe wo kahe, that has no bearing. Jab tak hume notification nahi milta, tab tak hamare under hi hai. So, right now, they have defined broadcasting as someone who is uplinking and downlinking using satellite, and print as someone who's registered with the registrar of newspapers and periodicals. Digital is neither. I am aware of digital platforms that are circumventing the procedure by not putting the term news in their article or association, but putting it in content. However, if you put in news, then you come under a different regulatory framework. Well, HT set up a separate company uh, <laughs> called HT Content or something like that, which so, um, and there's a chief content officer, not an editor as well. So. Yeah. So, so there's so so you, there are ten ways to actually bypass it. But the thing is, because of the vagueness of the way the law is drafted, and typically the law is always a decade behind technology, in India probably four decades behind, the Cards will always be in the hands of the government because they can interpret. It's like you put in the word annoyance. Vagueness, I think, where we disagreed was the more vague you keep it, keep it is it in our interest or their interest? My reading is if it's vague, it's in their interest because they can interpret it any way they want depending on who they want to shut down. It's like putting the word annoyance. So, yeah, I mean, um, there are a lot, there are that issues of, I'll give you, there are issues of, of tax. For example, uh, I believe the uh, ad model is uh, bound to fail for news not for all content, just for news. For which, if I'm a private related company and I'm taking 1,000 rupees from one subscriber and 50 rupees from another subscriber, I have to give them separate services because the service tax would be levied accordingly. Otherwise, I can be slapped with a service tax for all my traffic, even the ones who are consuming it free. Whereas a Section 25 company can take 10 from one, 50 from one, provide them the same service. So there are so many wheels within wheels and, and, and uh, compliance costs associated with it. Uh, and, and the government has done nothing legally to make ease of doing business easier. Uh, it's, it's, yeah, far, far from it. Okay, so I'm going to uh, go to Kushan and to Prasad about uh, what they think about regulation of online content. I just wanted to address a point that was made about uh, takedowns uh, under Section 79, and also, sorry, more specifically, Section 69, which you'd mentioned. In case of Section 69 of the IT Act, it's essentially secret government blocking. So uh, section 79, which was which led to, you know, people filing uh, takedown notices with Rediff because uh, just they had a piece on diapers, you know, um, just to show that this method fails because anyone in the world could file a takedown notice with a website, and uh, if they did not take that content down, they would have the liability for that content. So when that happens, most people err on the side of caution and take the content down. Um, so, so what happened in the Supreme Court was they, they wrote down Section 79 of the IT Act and said you need a court order to get that content taken down or a secretary in the government uh, needs to approve it. 
Uh, it can't be just any random person sending a, a, a complaint to a website. Section 69 was secret government blocking, and they said there is already due process in place, which is why we don't need to change it. So government can block any site they want, and they can keep that blocking secret, um, which has been done in numerous instances in the past. So just, uh, Kushan, your take on online content regulation, can we do without regulation? or has that No, we need a bit of regulation on certain aspects of content. I'll get to that later. I, mean, we, I just want to bring up uh, Ravi Shankar Prasad's time when he banned all porn sites. That was uniquely hilarious. And if you remember the John Oliver uh, video he did and gave, he actually made discoverability for some porn sites nobody had an idea about. No, so, so what happened there was that uh, the, the, there was a case against child sexual abuse yeah, in the yeah. Supreme Court. And, and the, 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 uh, the deputy attorney general essentially gave a list yeah. of sites which had and been prepared which were, by which were all an association. We know that the telecom companies then went crying back to him. But I want to get to something a bit more difficult, uh, where there is misinformation. And I want to get to, therefore, medical misinformation online. Now, what should be done there? There's a lot of content out there. And you know, many of us suffer from many diseases. And we go uh, today, the web is an immediate source of information for us about whatever conditions we have. It's cancer, diabetes, whatever the hell it is. And what happens there is you know, there's a lot of snake oil salesmen online. We, even on Twitter, there's a famous nutritionist on Twitter Which yesterday just happened, yeah. yeah, who said mangoes are fine for diabetics. And as a diabetic, I'm like, okay, that's not necessarily true. So what happens there? What sort of punishment levels and should you regulate content, which can be potentially fatal over here, by the way? Bad medical information, even on a respectable site, can be fatal. Now, what do you do there? Do we regulate over there? Do we punish? Do we take the content down? Uh, who, I mean... That's a question I have for the panel. I mean, it's, uh, and some of the content could even be in newspapers, a doctor's opinion, for example, which if a doctor gives a bad opinion in a newspaper, you have the press council you can complain to and you know, we can do. But what, what happens if it's online? And again, geographical boundaries are not followed over here. And this but, is- But that's a news specific issue, right? That is a news specific issue, but- uh, Because then it goes back to the definition of what is news. What is news, what is opinion, and uh, that's the problem. But, but what happens with actual misinformation? And this is not, not just medical, but there's misinformation on various, various respects. And when we call it content rather than news, and I don't want to get into the content versus news debate over here, but what, if, what happens if there's misinformation out there? It's not free speech. Uh, misinformation, you know, people could get scared of flying a plane, Mis people could get, okay. you know, medicines are bad, etc., etc. So uh, I'd like so to panel to address that. Anybody uh, want yeah, to address that? Yeah, uh, I'd just like to say that. I think... Amba, you also want to address that? That's, uh, you know, when it comes to, for example, the mango example, um, I think if a, a medical doctor, I remember Dr. Sriram Lagu had been, uh, you know, his, his doctor license had been revoked because he did Chavan Prash, had a Dadaji badminton, I don't know, most of you are too young to remember that, but he was a practicing doctor and he was endorsing something that had no scientific basis. Now, you know, I've heard very responsible people say that, you know, Gaumutra is good for you. Uh, like, fine, that's their view, you know, let them drink pee. I'm a diabetic. Uh, I was very thrilled when this guy said it, so I could show my doctor. I can. But what I'm saying is that is not the same thing as a law against free speech. If he's a practicing doctor, she's a practicing doctor, their license can be revoked. It's like saying when I was young, uh, my grandmother says, don't get your hair cut on Tuesday. No, no but Avinan, his point is that there are enough sites or enough sources of information which are not doctors, which people rely on, which can potentially be fatal. That, sure, but what I'm saying is that is just, that is a, that's one example of a real world problem 
that has just been juxtaposed in the virtual world, that's not a new problem. There were, there were doctors who prescribed you know, that you can cure diabetes. There's but still doctors who prescribe the problem that. Is but that uh, the scale and the impact this, of something yeah, online, it's far greater than it's, someone telling someone else, you know. That's it's not an article in a magazine. It's everybody online. And you see, these guys will do SEO and be number one on Google. And, you know, I trust Google, so therefore I'll just go, oh, yeah, as a diabetic, I can, just, can have three cans of Coke in a day. It's fine. So. I, I honestly don't think this is, a, this is the problem that is set out to solve. I, I still think it is not a new problem. Sure, the scale is big. Say, you know, Huge. One second. Let's not confuse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, let's not confuse issues here because uh, we are talking know, of content. We're the mango, the mango issue is a is a content platform agnostic issue, right? If they, if somebody gives bad medical advice which causes harm, if somebody gives bad stock market tips, you have remedies, right? You have real world remedies. Pursue them, and it doesn't matter whether something is online but, or offline, right? But but but, but, but uh, stock market tips comes to another issue over here. Can you so, give so, insider so, information over there? So in case we are not addressing. We have just stuck to no, politics. No no no. no, 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 no Kushan, Kushan, in in, in or, case of stock markets, if I make in case of stock markets, uh, SEBI, SEBI is regulating uh, mission, uh, like uh, insider information on WhatsApp and on social media as well. Finally. Finally. No, so, but it's not inside information. There's a very good podcast on NPR Planet Money about when Moody's and all these guys had given AAA ratings to uh, you know credit default swaps. They said we are like a film review, and we will give AAA ratings if you don't like our view, don't buy it. They were still not bound by the SEC or Supreme. That is why they got away scot free. What I'm saying is that is a view. That problem has existed. It existed in one of the biggest financial meltdowns the world has ever seen, and you cannot do anything about it because Moody says it is our view. So if it is a doctor's view that you know, it's good for you. Fair enough. Amba? Uh, yeah, I just want to say maybe you're feeling comfortable with the idea that someone should do something about it because it's in the context of medical information where you think there is... A, yeah, where you think there is a clear boundary between what is truth and, and fiction. But I think some of the same problems that come up with fake news will also come up in your example. So, for example, if you think at scale people posting you know, false stuff about medicines should be regulated, then the question is by whom? So do you want platforms to be sitting and having medical practitioners or paramedics to decide what is correct and what is not? Often, again, and I'm, I'm just taking off on your example to say, we run into the same issues of, okay, you think something should be done, but who do you want to implement it and, and who do you want to decide given the scale of what is circulating on, on social media? Usually, in terms of stock information in India's case, is SEBI or the US is SEC and there are regulatory bodies for bad financial advice and but there is a lot of bad financial advice also going around in terms of investments as you can make out you know invest in this uh, so, so, fund so, then, or, so, so then would you want different ministries to look at different no, types and, of and content that's what i want to a lot of paid news online is you know people pushing up one particular fund or one particular script almost, without almost all of outbrain and uh, you know that kind of that's all health-related stuff that uh, misinformation that is sold on that anyway. So that kind of advertising also happens in case of uh, outbrain and legitimate sites like Mint or whatever have the, even the I think the uh, do you use outbrain? There's a lot of misinformation in that in that kind of content that people because of the legitimacy or the publication exactly. that it's on. So because you see it or you see it on a on a, on a on a good publications website, you have outbrain. So you know if yeah. it's advertised here, it must be good. No, but to that question, does anyone have any ideas about how do you deal with this? Any ideas? Uh, Kushan, just pass the mic there. 
not an idea, but just reference if anyone's a student of history. The same conversations have been held about letterpress expanding the spread of the word. So okay, if you look we at don't, historical we don't grounds, want to go back into so that. This, saying, so is the there a point is the format is not essential. If you're talking about whether online spreads it faster than the other media, that cannot be the barometer by which you set up different benchmarks for this format versus the no, other. No, but there is a legitimate challenge that the scale and the impact is much greater so this, in this case. Again, in the 19th century, this has been the same arguments in European society have been held about spreading books through letterpress rather than manual printing and calligraphy. You're again ending up in the same conversation saying, because it spreads very fast, we can, we can't trust the individuals to know exactly what it is. They are poor people, don't understand. Therefore, we must regulate okay. better. So, this uh, is really so going backwards. In, okay. in fact, in fact Nikhil, it, the spe speed is the same logic that the government of India still clings to, to not allow news and current affairs on radio. On radio, yeah. exactly. So, uh, fair enough. And that's actually that regulatory, additional regulatory burden means that there's more room for growth on the internet in that sense, right? Because far larger base, uh, you have seen streaming sites do very well as well. Uh, Prasad, any ideas on regulation, whether it should be there? So as somebody who deals with, uh, I don't know, about 10 cases a day, every day, or site takedown, site content takedown notices, um, I don't think we need more regulation. I really don't think uh, we need frameworks for regulation. Uh, if there is a specific problem, whether it's fake news or something, you can have some industry standards set up. Uh, there are self-regulatory mechanisms that work maybe eight out of 10 times in the broadcast industry. And I've been uh, in the broadcast industry earlier, and uh, something like BCCC, for example, uh, in the non-news space works most of the time. So we can look at those kind of mechanisms. But I really don't think we need more uh, regulations on online content. It, it's just not necessary. We have enough laws, and we have uh, laws that are implemented very badly half the times. So it, and, it, and it's a problem with, I think, most editors face with regular notices and legal aids. In Times of India, when I was the editor for timesofindia.com, I had two legal people on my team, like two lawyers on, on an editorial team who would advise me on replying to these notices. So it, it's, a, it's a terrible problem. Uh, so I just want to, uh, you know, uh, reiterate Amba's point, which is that just because you say you want to do regulation does not mean it's clear how, who will do it, what is to be regulated, and these are extremely complex questions, and sometimes will lead to more problems than solutions. And the, the other thing that I want to say is that, you know, in the case, uh, the example that uh, this person gave on, let's say, mangoes or misinformation, why are we precluding the growth of a certification industry that uh, people can rely on to say, do I believe this or do I not believe this? You know, so the more uh, misinformation there is, I think that there will be an industry that uh, you rely on to give you, uh, you know, more reliable information. No, but just to, I think, a point that Amba made earlier, who certifies? I, you don't, I mean, there can be different agencies and you can pick and choose which agency you rely on more. I mean, ultimately, that's what we do. You can't have one agency telling you that this is credible and this is not. This evolves uh, over time and this evolves over reputation and that's the best antidote that you have. Okay, so I think uh, Rajan had a point. I'll just come back here. Yeah, um, Rajan from COI. The question here is you've been talking about um, sort of constraints on the regulatory side from the government. What about... Um, ownership of media and the resultant uh, 
filtering and uh, management of all of this information that comes from the concentration of ownership of the various cross-media events. Nobody seems to be concerned about this. So I think DRAI had a consultation paper on cross-media ownership. Uh, did anyone, I don't remember most of it, so. Uh, about three years ago. I don't remember the recommendations yet. TRAI did bring up the, and then everyone was like, this is not TRAI's domain to look into media ownership more generally. Uh, but I, I think that is one important missing part of all these conversations is that the reason we're so worried about particularly platforms and what's happening on the internet is because communications are quite concentrated on a handful of uh, platforms and therefore there are these kind of single points of influence whether it's for misinformation or whether it's for you know ads commercial ads these platforms themselves do not necessarily distinguish between commercial and political content and so there is a larger question on how the centralization of the web in general has contributed to a lot of these questions if I can also come in I think uh, I mean we uh, uh, I think your question is an excellent question and to a large extent our the aspect of regulation that we've been focusing on is precisely because of apprehension that what the government is looking at is content. But uh, and we probably had different views on the panel, so I can only speak for myself. But I think that uh, cross-media uh, regulation, as far as ownership is concerned, is desirable. It's urgent. Uh, precisely when you have a time, uh, when we are at a time when you have unprecedented monopolization. Uh, there are many examples from jurisdictions around the world which will tell us and prove that restriction on cross-media uh, ownership does not impact on media plurality. It, it actually improves media plurality and does not impact on you know, democratic concerns as some media houses would have us believe. So I think it's important to have that discussion. Uh, TRAIs, the TRAI report which I uh, uh, read and wrote about when it came out, I think was a very good first effort. They not only flagged uh, cross-ownership, they also looked at uh, they tried to enter the paid news discussion through uh, the need for greater transparency about the finances and revenue side of media operations. And I think all of these are important conversations to have. Uh, right now, uh, sadly, our preoccupation has been on the, uh, you know, the government, because the government, I think, will probably use the lever of, and sadly, this is true of many uh, government regula regulation-forming processes, that you, you will threaten media owners. You will hold that sort of democracy over them and say, I will you know, create this regulation which will crimp or affect you if you don't cooperate. And then media houses all fall into line. So sadly, that's uh, as far as the government takes this conversation. But I think as media professionals, uh, this is an important topic to discuss. No, so if you Sorry, look at it from a, from a concentration of power perspective, you've also got a situation online <coughs> where you have certain platforms that enable discovery of news having a significant concentration of power. So even though you've had a decentralization in terms of creation of of uh, news and content, you have a centralization in terms of what the platforms are doing. Uh, sorry, Abhinandar. But actually, um, the centralization is more untrue today than it has ever been. Uh, I mean, while you know, I agree with Siddharth that there is a you know desirability for this conversation. Um, let me tell you what the reality is till date. First of all, just to give you an idea, even the U.S. and the U.K. laws now are a kind a little behind the times because. Um, I may get this, you know, the other way, but one of them has a two out of three rule that media, uh, uh, print, television, and radio, because they're radio, you're out news on radio, you can only own two out of three in one particular area. And I think that's the US. And UK is 20-20. That means if you have more than 20% of the market share, no one entity or individual can own 
20% of the stake. You have to be you know, south of 20% of stake. Now, that assumes two things. That the agency that is telling you what your reach is, is honest. As far as Bark and Tam is concerned, enough said. So you don't have that data. Secondly, with convergence coming, the print, the two out of three rule kind of falls flat on its face if it's all digital. Now, in this environment, in India, what is the rule? You can only take FDI in, and you're talking about companies where founders have 5% stake, 4% stake, you know, Steve Jobs at 5% of Apple. So in any case, the, the, the more you grow, it becomes fragmented. In India, the rule is you have to own 51%. One entity has to own 51% in broadcast. So their rule, rather than encouraging diversity, is encouraging concentration in one hand. And so is, it is, is this applicable to the internet as well? Yes, because they have said internet is applicable in broadcast rules. So, well, depending on which letter you go with, there's a letter that says print, there's a letter that says broadcast, but... So, you, you want to so talk about the letter which you said? And me? Yeah, I mean, you know, I've got a letter that says, you know, uh, this um, internet comes under print. And I've got a letter from the Army Ministry that says that, no, it does not come under print. But on the FIPB report online on the government website in 2014, it says it comes under broadcast. I mean, it's all over the place. But even... Now, now, sorry, I'm just telling you about, so what Siddharth says of concentration of power as far as it comes to, when it comes to media and how much impact you have is taken. But let's say you take care of that. What about uh, an entity like Reliance, for example, for whom the media outfit is just the lobbying budget or the marketing budget for their other marketing interests? There the market doesn't hold. So there are very new problems associated with it. And like I said, uh, we're about 50 years behind in resolving those. Okay, so, so uh, there's a point there that Prasoon uh, had to make. A try recommendation was made uh, in January 2017, and this was the second time Try had given recommendation to INP ministry earlier. They had given when UPA was there. And then in May, INP secretary has written to Try on to look again on vertical and horizontal ownership because there were issues regarding expansion of business. Uh, this after was in, in, in 2016? In 2017. Okay. May. After that, TRI has to get back to INB ministry. Okay. I don't think that's going to happen in the tenure of this TRI chairman because he's got so many unfinished consultations currently happening. Yeah, sorry. Uh, Nikhil, perhaps you can answer this question. Uh, I'm just uh, out of uh, curiosity. I just want to know how many people are actually for online content regulation here. Uh, is there a single, hands, how many people is there want a single person in this regulation? room who wants online content regulation? So, so the thing is that... Okay. As a, so, so, so there are two people, okay? No, now, three. So, uh, great, wonderful. Okay, so people, one thing. Okay. Could we go uh, one by one and understand why... Yeah, yeah, why? I, I'll come to that. But yeah. my point out here is your panelists, are all of them, all of them are not for it. And at least... I, uh, oh, uh, one of them actually was the only one who said that, okay, perhaps I'm not. Uh, I'm not clear. I don't want to reveal my thoughts on that, etc. But you can answer that, go ahead. But the point I'm trying to make out here is that how are we to actually understand, and I am somebody who doesn't want online content regulation very clearly, how are we simply to understand why is it that this government wants it in the first place if nobody out here, three people, hardly anyone on the panel, is actually going to talk about that? Okay, uh, Subha, do you have an answer to why the government wants online news regulation since you interact with the government quite a bit? No, I have I have answers for everything, <laughs> but they cannot be stated publicly. Does <laughs> <laughs> anyone? Uh, you know, e every country deserves the government it votes in, right, in a democracy. 
So ultimately, we're responsible for, you know, we keep bashing the government. We're the ones who voted these people in, right? So that's so one point. Don't tell you yeah. want to get into politics. No, no, it's not politics. It's democratic principles. So we're beginning from that point of view. When we as a telecom operator stand in the shoes of the sovereign in terms of having to exercise uh, certain responsibilities on behalf of the sovereign, of course, we need to, we can't arbitrarily make those rules as to what we shut down. And, you know, so we need to have a regulatory framework in, in place so that we are protected against liabilities from anybody and anybody who thinks we violated their rights or whatever, right? So in this case, to, it already exists. Well, uh, that's exactly the point. So the, the question being asked, should we have regulation seems to be a non sequitur. I mean, of course we do. The question is, what is the nature and the extent of the regulation? I think that's more appropriate. So, so one of the ways of looking at it is that under Section 69, which is mentioned under Section 79 of the IT Act, there is already regulation of online content which exists. The question, I think, is is there need for more granular and further regulation? So I, who and was I mean, in favor of regulation? Just one, just one thing. Can I just say, I think when you ask the question as on, do you are you in favor of online content regulation? That's I, I think that's a slight mistake because already we're subscribing to this idea that all content is somehow the same and we have to be either for or against it. Instead, if you ask people in the room, are you in favor of regulating fake news? I say no. Am I in favor of regulating misogynist, sexually explicit content? Maybe copyright? Yes, or maybe like I think I think that's why I'm sorry to keep ham hammering on the same point, but I do think we need to differentiate between different kinds of speech to ask this question. And I'm uh, all for it. I'm all yeah. for just one sec. I'm all for what you said. We're the thing is that times. it's the government really that is vague in its terminology, and and that is why I'm being specific about using online content because that's what they've used. Fair enough. Uh, I think Amba's actually answered the question, so I don't need to specifically state you know why do you believe in certain types of regulation. There are certain areas where you might feel the need to regulate, as even Siddharth was pointing out, hate speech, for instance. He mentioned that. I was actually curious if the panel could comment on what they think of the intersectionality between journalism and privacy law, which we're likely to see, and which might lead to some element of content regulation in the online space as well. I, I think that that's a scope? separate topic. Uh, you had a, you want favored online content regulation? Uh, okay. Uh, Hi. Okay. First, I didn't realize such like only three people will raise their hands. Otherwise, I wouldn't have. Uh, I'm looking at it from a reader's point of view and not as a journalist or a digital journalist. Uh, who? What is the difference between content and news, right? So, uh, like they mentioned, a lot of people get away by the like, HT launched a web business which publishes content, and Hindustan Times also publishes news. So when I see it on my timeline, is it content? Is it news? Secondly, because I manage social media, so I see. Brands don't really matter anymore, right? It, we can get into why they don't matter anymore and why. I mean, I don't necessarily go looking for something on the Times of India, which some people say are, is reliable. So it's like whatever shows up on your timeline and it stays. And there are a lot of uh, research and study to, you know, that shows that even if you know that, if you get to know that it is it was fake news, it still stays with you, right? And you certain amount of you start believing in it. So uh, I'm not saying that there should be government regulation. Obviously, this is not a space for government to say anything or do anything. But there needs to be some amount of regulation, right? Considering news so, travels so, so fast. So therefore, what you're talking about is self-regulation. Little uh, bit. Uh, and self-regulation from whom? So self-regulation yeah, from I'm coming content there. providers, self-regulation from platforms? No. Um, self-regulation, as in I, again, I'm coming back to there needs to be a body, like a body which is off the media, by the media, for the media kind of a body. But then Who's I understand. 
who is the media in that context? Yeah, exa- I'm coming. I'm coming <laughs> to that. That was my next one. Okay. Uh, because this this is basically uh, the very basis of this is who is media and the first question that they, we started with who is who what is news right? So I again this is the second media now event. I don't see any representation from the right wing. I'm not sure if you invited or you did not invite. And it's it's I'm not living. I'm just saying there yeah. was there is no representation right. So if we are all not together at least we don't have to agree. But if we're all not on the table together. I don't see this going forward. We can keep discussing this again and so again and again in our context. Bubbles. I think Kushan is definitely not left. He's, although he I mean, has left. I'm, I'm, this is not Twitter. We don't need to go all either you are Savarkar or you are Marx. This is not Twitter. Fair enough. Or, you get what I'm saying, right? Yeah. So, yeah, so there needs to be some. Because, again, as much as uh, this is not going to sound nice, but I don't think everybody is ethical to the same level, right? So for something, we might uh, censor ourselves and we might stop ourselves. We think this is not okay, but the same standards can't be applied to a Z News or a HT or somebody who's running uh, on ad on ad revenue. So yeah, there needs to be some sort of regulation, right? Otherwise, how do we stop? This is one of my favorite pastimes because I keep going to Facebook debugger just to see how many interactions uh, Right Logue and Op India and all of these articles get. And sadly, on most of their pieces, they're way higher than what the wire or the scroll gets. So yeah, they're getting shared, they're getting read, so they might as well be on the table. That's all I'm saying. And then, you know. Yeah, so, okay. (laughs) Did I confuse you more? Yes. (laughs) I don't think it's a question about do we want to regulate online content or not. I think it's a question of when is it going to happen. It's going to happen definitely. It's happening globally. Um, the second is the question of how do we define news and journalists. I think the role of journalists as gatekeepers of information is over. The definition of news is no longer what is relevant to a reader, it's information. The moment you define news as information, you start looking at things differently. Uh, the third thing is who are these vectors that are spreading all of this uh, polluting, uh, polluted content? They're platforms, and in that, platforms are the gatekeepers. So if regulations happen, if you try and regulate online content, the last time we tried doing it at scale was when we were trying to regulate uh, cont- uh, comments on websites. We failed miserably trying to moderate comments on websites. Okay, Cyril, we're kind of running out of time, so I'm going to be very specific with questions. In terms of self-regulation, who would you like to see self-regulate? Self-regulation what? doesn't work. It doesn't work. Then, then would you like to see government regulations? Government re- governments regulating platforms, not news organizations. Not news organizations. Uh, anyone has any comments on that aspect? About government regulating platforms to regulate news? Okay. Uh, and regulation not around content, but around uh, data protection, around targeting people, around... Ad- that, because that, misinformation is essentially an uh, advertising problem. No, no, but that doesn't... No, not necessarily. If you look at misinformation on, on WhatsApp, that's not an advertisement. That's essentially spreading but organically. That's a different, but if you look at the primary vectors, YouTube, uh, WhatsApp, Facebook, Google, uh, Twitter, all of this runs on Amazon. I mean, these these are the guys who are responsible. So essentially, we want to understand if there's self-regulation, who self-regulates, how does this work, or can we just do without it? But uh, you had yeah, a point. Yeah, so as in, um, a lot of the discussion is focused around regulation by the government, but Oh, lower? No, sit down. Okay. <laughs> you don't have to stand. <laughs> so, uh, so uh, uh, regulation by the government, but uh, regulation is already happening in a sense, which is moderation by these platforms. And they decide what content gets monetized, uh, what content gets shared, and what content gets labeled. Now, Facebook wants to label content with 
you know, third parties and all that thing. Now the problem is these platforms aren't answerable to us in any which way. They are not elected institutions. They don't have any reason to be answerable to us. So if they are not seeing any form of regulation, then ultimately they are, um, you know, they have the power over uh, news publications and an inordinate amount of power over news publication and who gets who sees what and what kind of monetization do they receive. So I think it is essential that these platforms have some form of regulation uh, from a, a, a government sort of regulation that happens to a Facebook or a YouTube or a Google. Maybe not the pap the publication. So, so the problem with that, the way I see it, and we've seen this in the past, is that when the platforms have a statutory sort of burden on them to regulate content, they will always be more conscious and regulate a lot more than they necessarily need to. If they've even done that with their own terms and conditions, if you remember the instance in case of, uh, you know, the the photograph of that Vietnamese girl and the napalm bomb, that was taken down by Facebook, even though it was legitimate under free speech because it was an, a naked child uh, and, and and her photograph. So platforms will always overregulate. Um, right, Amber? No, but like I would, uh, I would like the regulation to be framed in a way where the platforms should be answerable and responsible to the content creators, which is the news publishers and all. So I think it should be in favor of the publishers, and uh, not as in okay, remove everything that's there or so on. That's the interesting. Unless there is a legal liability on platforms, they don't remove content. Uh, no, actually, they, they do remove content even though there isn't legal liability. In, like in this case, there was no liability on them. I think if an organization claims to be a news organization, they need to have certain responsibilities towards their audience. It's like if I put money in the bank, I have different expectations. Uh, the bank is supposed to safeguard my money. Similarly, what I expect from a news organization is that they, they should not be allowed to put out fake news. So the suggestion here is that if you're if you declare yourself to be a non-news organization, you can put out whatever yeah, kind yeah, of content. Yeah, yeah. So, so no. the leader should know whether they are visiting a non-news organization or a news organization, a news website or a non-news website, so that you are never unsure whether you're uh, whether you're reading the truth or not. Whether you're reading fiction or non-fiction, that should be clear to you. So. What what is, WhatsApp, WhatsApp will never claim to be a news organization, right? No no, so, no, no, so a WhatsApp message coming on a group that you're part of, what? how would you classify that? That's not a news organization. Well, people will eventually figure out that this is non-fiction, so, but if they go to a website, or Indian Express, <laughs> which, if it claims so let, to let, be a let news... let people figure out which news organizations they want to read and which news organizations they yeah, don't want I to read. Yeah, and I want read. my democratically elected government to enforce that. That enforce that people figure out? No, enforce that if an organization is going to claim to be a news organization and they have certain responsibilities to put out the truth. My, my reading of this is that there's actually a regulatory disadvantage to, be, to label yourself a news organization and there is no significant financial benefit of being a news organization versus just a pusher of content and therefore no one is going to call them a news organization unless it's for philanthropy money that's going to come in. See, this is, this is the business model problem no, that you'll have. There should be some certain safeguards that the law gives to journalists regarding collection or investigation or protection against uh, 
Fair enough. So, so the so, Tibetan stick approach in that yeah. sense. Uh, Prasad, you had something to say? Okay, so uh, Ambar had to make some last comments before she leaves. So, um, just one comment, then we'll just come back to you. Ambar? Yeah, sorry, I have to uh, leave, but I just wanted to say one thing on a on a possible solution is the problem with social media platforms is obviously one aspect is content moderation, but the other is discoverability. So why we see what we see on our news feeds, and I don't know the facts for India, but elsewhere it's clear that people are consuming news at large through social media platforms rather than natively on news websites. So on that point, I think one urgent reform we need in time for the elections of 2019 is political ad transparency and advertisements not only, for example, Mark Zuckerberg just said, not just from political parties, but also issue ads. So if any political content has been paid for, that declaration needs to be clear on social media, particularly for those who are not even clicking on links to read them. So in terms of something that we can do, I think transparency is something which has minimal sort of free speech harms that we've been worried about today. Okay. What, what? Point that she's mentioned. Just one point. Huh. When you talk about policy, just mention this also, that even if you manage to regulate this, here we are 50 years ahead of technology, the, the guys, because you will have WhatsApp forwards, which are memes. They are not political ads. You so will never WhatsApp be able to- WhatsApp is out of this conversation, sort of, because it's an encrypted private communication. So perhaps we couldn't even make, enforce these regulations to begin with. But I'm, I'm talking more about sort of open, uh, more public uh, forums like Facebook or Twitter. So, so say Facebook or Twitter also. The yeah. whole concept of people sending out memes on their own and they being paid 10 rupees, 30 rupees, 40 rupees without any transparency is very difficult to actually track down. Uh, I just wanted to bring a different dimension to the debate that is happening right now. We understand that uh, a lot of people in this room say that uh, regulation is not the way to go, but what happens if uh, a state government thinks that, okay, you know, there is a riot in a place and there is a fear that it, online content can spread the wrong uh, message, so they just shut down the internet. Is that the right so, way? So there, there are multiple things that have been done. So they've, in instances, they've shut down the entire internet. Yes. In some instances, they've shut down social networking platforms. Right. Uh, and a large part of this problem comes with the idea that it's difficult to... Uh, to identify the source of that misinformation right. uh, because of either anonymity or because of end-to-end -end encryption or because it's gone from person to person to person. Right. Of course, uh, the encryption problem might be solved very soon because you know the WhatsApp is now going back completely into yeah. the control of Facebook yeah. uh, <laughs> and they never wanted end-to-end -end encryption as far as we right. understand to begin right. with. Right. But uh, I think there are going to be challenges. Mm. Some of those might be accidentally addressed. Yes. Um, Chaitanya, your views? on online content regulation, news regulation in particular. Thanks, Nikhil. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to say was, uh, years ago when I used to work with Reuters, uh, we had a simple rule. There was no such thing as geographical limits to uh, discoverability and accountability. If you publish news that was uh, defamatory or slanderous or hurtful or uh, hateful, you could get sued in any jurisdiction anywhere in the world. And uh, because you were an on, we were an online platform years before the word online was invented. Um, and so I think one of the big things that I feel is that the word content itself is very misleading because we're talking here of uh, what, what, is what constitutes information, how it's dissim dis uh, d d d dissimulated, dis disseminated, 
across the world and uh, what who consumes it and what that amounts to. And so we have, I, I was listening to a discussion a couple of days ago about the uh, fragility of our uh, criminal def uh, laws and their enforcement. Uh, most of the time we are slapped with criminal uh, actions when we are held up as for defamation in, in this country now and sedition as, as Siddharth pointed out. But uh, I think I think what we what we need to get to is a jurisprudence that takes in all creation of information and how it's disseminated and what end effects it has and who consumes it because we don't have much of that right now and uh, it's so wide open right now that it can be abused on a very very regular basis and that's what worries me and I think we one of the things that this committee could uh, should have been. Uh, looking at is that precise thing. But uh, as, you, as you said, Nikhil, WhatsApp is no longer encrypted. It's now... No, uh, it, it is still encrypted. Well, it is. It's it going to be, it's going to be a, one of its co-founders resigned because he didn't want it to go under uh, Facebook control. Um, but the fact is that uh, there is no such thing as uh, uh, encrypted or closed user groups or whatever. Hate can be spread instantaneously now. And... Uh, uh, I think I think we're just not getting to a proper definition. Where I would like to hear from the the legal uh, brains in this room on how uh, we they think that it's going in India in particular, which has the maximum number of WhatsApp users, hate speech uh, spreading by via Twitter and so on. Uh, where is that going? Because I we seem to be completely out of uh, the wires and the quints and the. Uh, the prince and others are trying their hardest to put out supposedly, I mean, I'm sure they all believe that it's completely curated and uh, balanced news, but uh, what is where, where does the accountability start? I think it was more a rhetorical point that Chetan is making. But I mean, the thing is that we, um, I mean, every, he mentioned us, there are lots of other sites, lots, I would say lots of newspapers also that provide quality content and which uh, you know, strive to have the greatest accuracy and which confront um, you know, fake news and uh, misinformation, disinformation, the reluctance of the rest of the media to cover certain kinds of stories. So it's, uh, you know, it's the no, best I, that you try to do. So for me, uh, this essentially boils down to the idea of um, identifying accountability uh, for the content and uh, also a situation that we're in that if we don't have um, media entities taking, online media entities especially, uh, putting out uh, on ethical norms and, and, and rules of, uh, of, of engagement and consciously trying to fight disinformation, yeah. um, this battle is going to get lost yeah. in terms of legitimate information. Uh, yeah, if, if, I can, actually, getting, if I can give an example of, yeah. of the kind of thing that maybe Chaitanya was getting at and what you're saying, that... Uh, you know, if you're, if you're digital or even if you're not, the fundamental contradiction in, in our trade right now is speed versus accuracy, right? So there's enormous pressure to be first with a news break. Right? So, people, you know, you have armies of people on, in the big channels and big newspapers that monitor Twitter and pick up what's trending and say, how do we ride this trend? And so yesterday there was, there was a story, somebody, a freelancer who writes for us occasionally, uh, phoned in in the morning to say that there's been a fresh communal incident in Jammu, in Katua. Uh, and so immediately, you know, my ears picked up, what is this, etc. It turned out that a Muslim lad had been stabbed 
by two Hindu boys who got off a car and stabbed him and then went off, right? And uh, so I alerted a couple of, you know, he was this person who alerted me, was not able to do the story. And I asked him, I said, are you sure this is a hate crime and not just a re you know, regular kind of murder? Because, you know, the why we don't cover some murder. Yeah. You know, but if, if the person was targeted because of their identity, then yeah, it, it becomes a hate crime and there is wider public interest. And uh, by evening, it then became clear that this was just, you know, enmity over money, et cetera, et cetera. You keep off the story. But it's the temptation to leap in and say Muslim boy stabbed, Hindu boys did the stabbing. You know, that would have been uh, an act of irresponsible journalism if one, you know, if one went with the kind of gut instinct of chalo jaldi se chala dete you know. Uh, so I think that the, the, I would urge all media platforms, but particularly TV channels that are most prone to running very fast with, with news, to be very careful in this day of, of uh, velocity, high velocity and high impact. Uh, to judge carefully the you know what they're putting out and uh, you know and sometimes you, sometimes uh, one's unwillingness to get pulled into what may be fake news may mean that you lose you lose out on a story or you, you come into a story much later than others but I still say it's uh, it's better to be cautious rather than to be uh, in a hurry so just to last final comments and from you and from everyone else if there was to be something that this committee does uh, in terms of uh, some kind of regulation, what would be acceptable or how would you like them to do, uh, deal with the situation that, or the task that they've embarked upon? Of which we don't have much detail right now. Yeah. What would you want them to do? Well, we, we, I mean, we have signed on to a statement which basically doesn't want this committee to do the... To, we want this committee to be scrapped because we don't think that the, the uh, reasons stated for creating it are valid. Hmm. Uh, but... The bottom line is something that I said in my interventions earlier, that uh, if there is to be, if, to the extent to which there is concern about content, uh, which is shared by people at large, I think that uh, w the re regulation slash rule slash whatever it is that you create uh, should be platform agnostic. And that I don't, I'm not comfortable with the situation where some things are criminalized or restricted or regulated because they appear on the internet. Uh, whereas the same thing said in a meeting or in print or on t television is considered okay. I think that uh, there should be one standard as far as, uh, you know, uh, the acceptability in, is concerned. In that sense, a content code which is applicable to print should be applicable to... Yeah, I mean, like, I'm quite... I'm all quite forms of free speech on I'm quite internet. comfortable that if, insofar as there is hate speech regulation in India, it, it should apply whether the speech is, you know, whether it's a minister saying it, uh, in, a, in a rally, or if somebody's saying it on a website, or somebody's saying it on television, uh, it shouldn't speech. matter. Yeah. Yeah. We've gone, gone about this question in, in various ways, what it should, what it not. And of course, we have been very diplomatic about the intentions uh, of the government. Could you just take us through what if the provisions that we have seen, what if they were to come true, how would life become more difficult for online news portals? And I'm not talking about mangoes here. I'm only going to talk about news. How do you see it becoming even worse if these were to be implemented and the government had its We haven't seen way? any provisions so far, just to... The intent. the intent. How bad can it get from here? Because I know it is already quite bad. I mean, you can be sued for defamation, something that you are very familiar with. Uh, you can be asked to pull off an article. What else is the intent here? I mean, at The Wire, we are dealing with unremitting hostility from uh, government. I mean, it's unprecedented to have ministers name 
portals or name like Smriti Rani gave an interview where she took my name and said that, you know, he's a US citizen, what does he know? He should follow. You know, very, very kind of uh, personalized attacks by, by ministers, which I think tells you something about the, the intent behind this. They are clearly unhappy with uh, the news that we uh, generate, the content we produce, and, uh, you know, don't, don't want us to carry on doing that. So, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not in the least bit uh, uh, in any doubt about what the true impulse behind this is. And the same is true for, you know, they're unhappy with what other, you know, other websites are doing. I don't think they're very pleased with some of the material that uh, some newspapers put out. They're not pleased with NDTV, which is why Pranoy Roy got raided uh, uh, by the CBI. And in that context, uh, Quint still hasn't got its broadcast uh, license. You know, Quint, and I think News Laundry has, is, is FDI not being cleared. So it's, you know, the, the impulse and intent is very clear. And I think that, uh, you know, uh, but what should concern readers is that if we allow the government to start doing this, uh, as I said, there is no halfway house. You, you will end up in, with the China or Russia kind of situation. The Chinese situation is where websites are blocked. Uh, and the Russian situation where they would create all kinds of, of rules so that if you want to run a website in Russia, you have to move to Lithuania. You can't do it in Russia. Uh, we're both final comments. One thing, uh, I mean, to Siddharth's last comment, uh, I think Western Europe has also intervened in terms of blocking content, which is coming from outside Western Europe, yeah. So I think this China argument perhaps might be a little bit on the extreme. I think there are other ways sort of liberal democracies have tried to sort of restrain the flow of content across their borders, including 30% sort of stuff which is happening in Europe last time. So I'm just saying, taking a sort of slightly different, you know, middle ground on that. Uh, my point was to respond to what you were saying, Nikhil. I mean, if at all, you know, any committee comes up, um, I would actually like to see a lot of evidence. What are the numbers upon which they are basing these things? Yeah? And this will sort of require disclosures from a large number of people in the value chain. Uh, and I'm wondering whether, you know, that is something which is acceptable to the value chain itself. You mean uh, transparency and transparency, data? I, 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 need, I need to see the evidence upon which a committee makes a decision. No, no. So you're Tell saying you're actually expecting transparency from the government? I'm, I'm expecting the government to provide me evidence based upon which it is making a decision. Till now, we get only decisions. We don't get the evidence. Sir. I okay. think the new paradigm is that transparency is for citizens. I beg your pardon? <laughs> the new paradigm is that transparency is for citizens. I think in this citizens. case, if we have more transparency in the value chain, yeah. it might translate into transparency for the end user. Okay. Especially at the upper end of the value chains. Yeah. Okay. Great. So uh, we're out of time. Thank you so much, uh, Siddharth Venkatesh, uh, for helping us through this discussion. Thanks. All the News Laundry podcasts are available on Stitcher, iTunes, and any other podcast platform. Please subscribe to News Laundry. Help us keep news independent. To catch all our podcasts on news, pop culture, current affairs, and sport, visit newslaundry.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and subscribe to our YouTube channel.